back. We promised you we'd talk a little bit about uh, about the Everest disaster in, in, in the wake of Dr. Beckweather's uh, remarkable and inspiring talk at Mondavi Center on January 10th. I, um, I think it would be wrong to try and, and, and speak for Dr. Weathers. You really should hear what he has to say. I have not read his book, Left for Dead, but I, I am going to get a copy of it. Most of us were riveted by John Krakauer's account of the Everest disaster into thin air. If you haven't read that, I certainly recommend that you get a copy of it. In Krakauer's book, he describes how, uh, how after Weathers has walked back into camp, confounding everybody by saving himself, something that Weathers is at a loss to explain, how he could have survived is, is, is a medical miracle. But his second night, the wind was blowing even stronger than the first night, they put him in a tent and left him for dead. Krakauer wrote that upon finding Beck in the tent, describing the next morning after an even even more, uh, even a worse windstorm, I was so shocked by his hideous condition and by the unforgivable way that we let him down yet again, I nearly broke into tears. I recommend also the, the Everest IMAX special, which, which I have on v, VHS. I'm sure it's also available on, on DVDs. That 45-minute film is, uh, is also very inspirational and, and a remarkable uh, a chronicle of what happened that day in 1996. I want to just round out the story from a little personal experience, uh, not on Everest, but with a friend who was on Everest. We had a guide in Mexico when I went down to climb there a couple years ago. I'm, I'm not a mountain climber, but I've thrown on the crampons and gone up Kilimanjaro at 19,000 feet. Um, climbed around on peaks 17,000 to 18,000 in, in Mexico. And, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. While in Mexico, our guide, Andreas, had been on Everest during that storm in May of 1996. He was on the north slope trying to climb with a couple of Germans who he'd thrown in with. Well, in a story that's sort of remarkable parallel to what happened on the south side with uh, the disaster that struck the Krakauer group, people weren't doing so well in the north either. Uh, Andreas got very uh, cold and chilled and was also left for dead in a tent by the Germans he was with because I guess they were sort of mad at him. At one moment, they were going to like try and share a tent. He described how they'd gotten ticked at something, and he wasn't even sure what, and said he, he couldn't join them in the tent. When he got so cold by himself, he basically just went over, opened the door, and dove in with them to try and save himself from the cold. The next morning, he was doing so badly that he was not able to come down. Well, the Germans pack up and leave him. And worse, when they come down to the next high camp, inform his friend, oh yeah, Andreas has said he was going to come down a little bit later. Well, he didn't get himself down. His friend had to go up the next day, pour some tea into him, get some liquid into him, and walk him back down the mountain. Or he too would have died on the upper slopes of Everest. And I think what's remarkable about this story, uh, the stories of what happened in Everest, is, is just the best and the worst of people being brought out under these circumstances. It's inconceivable that the guide... The well-respected guide, Rob Hall, told Dr. Weathers, wait here, promise me that you won't go down till I return, at which point he proceeds to go beyond the safe limit, gets himself isolated on the upper slopes, and as a further domino effect, leaves Weathers stranded, even though he could have come down with some people who were descending, 
but he, true to his word, decided to stay where he was. Well, it, it almost killed Beckweathers, and it wound up killing Rob Hall and his other clients high on the mountain. But John Krakauer writes about how this is not that uncommon. You get exposed to cold up there, you're virtually dead. Other climbers will then uh, put on their crampons, stomp up the mountain, take a look at you, and not even so much a stop to give you any tea. They will march on because they figure, well, you're probably going to die anyway. Krakauer uh, outlines a case of this happening to some, uh, some Indian climbers on the north side when some Japanese climbers walk past them. And you got to look at that as just, you know, the worst of human nature. And just one personal anecdote I want to add. Um, when I was in Ecuador, I thought climbing Mount Chimborazo would probably be a piece of cake at 20,700 feet. I'd had no trouble climbing Mount Kilimanjaro at 19,300 and figured that with some crampons on my feet and, uh, you know, some determination in my stride, I would be able to get it, get up the mountain without too much difficulty. Well, I joined three Austrians about midnight, setting up uh, from about 16,500 to go 4,000 feet up to the top. And we were climbing on slopes with a pretty strong wind, pretty strong gusts hitting us uh, all over the place. But we climbed higher and higher, and I realized more as we went along that I did not have adequate gloves. I'd rented some cheap Ecuadorian gloves, and they were uh, very much not keeping my hands warm. And the time we got to the top, around sunrise, I was as cold as I ever hoped to be in my life. Uh, the consequence of which were that I had frostbite on every single toe and every single finger. No, no tissue loss, luckily. But I did lose the sensation on every single digit, which had to grow back millimeter by millimeter over the next couple of months. Uh, I set out thinking that, you know, I could do this, and I was able to do it. But it's easy to find yourself in a life-threatening position very quickly if you don't take things with, uh, with deadly seriousness. And I didn't take that situation seriously enough. I, I could have succumbed to hypoxia, to hypoglycemia, to, uh, to hypothermia or to um, dehydration. They were all working against me. In the end, I can claim the bragging rights of having climbed the world's tallest mountain as measured from the center of the earth, but uh, I could have paid a much higher price. So, you know, looking at what happened on Everest, you realize, you know, you put yourself in, in harm's way in a really, really dangerous situation. You know, you, you've got to stack the deck in your favor as much as possible. Anyway, let us close with some lighter fare. Uh, the Oscars are around the corner, but uh, more importantly, the Razzie Awards have been announced. The Razzies, in a, in a mirror image of the Oscars every year, try to mock the very worst in, in, in what, uh, what came out in the previous year's film, and it appears that Haley Berry's Catwoman is leading the charge. Razzie founder John Wilson said, Catwoman is a cinematic equivalent of the clump in the cat litter box. <laughs> kind of a sad little thing laying there, stinking up the place. Catwoman scored seven Razzie nominations a couple weeks back, pulling ahead of the historical bomb Alexander, which, which received six. Uh, come Oscar time, we're going to, I think, <laughs> go through some of these choices because I think the Razzies are a lot more fun than the Oscars, so we'll, we'll return to this. And some good news, we would note that The Onion is apparently coming to San Francisco. We, we of course, love to read uh, Onion uh, headlines and articles uh, on this show. You can also check out their website, www.theonion.com. 
This started out as a weekly newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin in 1988. Uh, it has since expanded to include web operations, of course, as we just mentioned, and moved its editorial and advertising headquarters to New York City. The Onion publishes print editions in New York, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, and Denver, Boulder. And now it's adding San Francisco to the list. Apparently, there won't be any stories specifically for the Bay Area, uh, which is often satirized in The Onion, but they know that the local editions will allow people to basically grab a copy, go onto the subway, onto Bart or the Muni, and uh, read it while they're, being, while they're moving around. I, I'm looking forward to this. In fact, here's a, here's a couple Onion blurbs off of their calendar. One of those little cartoon segments like you see in, in, uh, in USA Today. What did we think we'd be doing with our lives by now? One, dancing professionally. Two, World-famous truck driver. Three, overseeing vast empire of, of some sort. Four, making at least assistant manager. Five, presenting own line of designer handbags. Six, owning car with gullwing doors. And number seven, not this telemarketing crap, that's for sure. And there's one I wish this was, uh, this was not radio but television uh, to show you this picture. They've got a guy weighing about 400 pounds sitting on a sofa with a video game joystick in his lap. Articles titled, Local Man Exhausted After Long Day of Video Games. Anyway, we love The Onion, and we say, welcome, Northern California. And uh, a final item, which seems like it's coming from The Onion, but is actually a real story. In Beverly Hills, a block from Rodeo Drive, Daryl Gaines a uh, fitness instructor has now come up with an indoor cycling a group that combines astrology with spinning. Apparently, the club's fitness cycle is intended to align your movements with the movements of the solar system. In my last trip to the store, I snagged a wonderful copy of Uncle John's latest bathroom reader, and I thought I would uh, share some astrologic information in it uh, with you devotees of... Uh, of the art of the Zodiac. This is actually probably worth returning to because we're just about out of time today. But let me just say in the couple minutes we've got left that if you think your astrological sign is whatever, it probably isn't. In fact, there's an 87% chance it isn't. Most of December, traditionally Sagittarius country, is actually the 13th constellation of the Zodiac. Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. Now, I know that we've upset the astrologic world with this pronouncement. How can this be? Well, astrology is 2,300 years out of date with what's actually taking place in the sky at night. And uh, again, we'll save that for, uh, for next week's show and have a little fun with that. Maybe we'll even get our good friend Michael Mercury to come talk to us. That is it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Our thanks to KCRA television cameraman, Mike Carroll, for his insights on Russ Meyer and our good friend, attorney, Stuart Gardner. Now, stay tuned for Todd to follow with Hometown Atrocities. We will see you next Thursday at 5 p.m.
Thank you.